three, two, one. Thunderbirds are go. <laughs> right, okay. You could include so, that. I could. That, the can bit. At the end. <laughs> that can go at the end or the start. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hello, welcome to another episode of Revolutionary Dispatches with me, Chris Wright. And me, David Bryan. It's been a while, David. It's been a while. It certainly has. Various reasons. Yeah. I'm back off off of the boat. It's it's currently Friday the the twenty first. Twenty first, yes. It's a late it's a late recording anyway, and since it's, it's, late it's in the been week. about two and a half weeks since we last spoke, so there's quite a lot to get through. And most of it happened so long ago that my memory is basically gone and I mm-hmm. can't remember. Who Theresa May is, <laughs> or she's the Home Secretary, isn't she? Uh, I think uh, Shadow Elf. I don't know. I can't. Remember. The Shadow Elf. The Shadow Elf. We should call Prime Ministers that from now on. I, I mean, we could, we could. Right. So the first point of order is, as we suspected last time, has come to pass that Vince Cable is the new Lib Dem leader. Yes. Yeah. She's not a huge surprise, given he was the only one running, but still, yes. it counts as news. Our predictions came true. Yes. Our, 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 our incredibly easy-to-make prediction was, in fact, borne out by the evidence. So everything you heard last week, or potentially didn't, because the audio was a bit rubbish to start with. Apologies for that. But everything we said last <laughs> week is now actually valid. So if you want to go back and have a listen, uh, you shall be enlightened. Yes. Yes, it's been retrospectively rendered actually a little bit interesting. Yes. So if we dealt with that. <laughs> it's not really a lot to say about that. But it's just, you know, that's happened. We no, we said, it all, we said it all last week, pretty much. <laughs> we've, we've kind of stolen the wind from our own sails, but yeah. never mind, never mind. This is just a, we were right. Yeah. Oh, isn't, isn't that nice? <laughs> well, it's nicer than being wrong. Yes. And, you know... I suppose it could have been Norman Lamb, so that would have made Alan very happy. But That's very true. Potentially no one else on earth. Does Adam like Norman Lamb? He is very much. Just a fan. like him better than Tim Farron. Very much a fan. Oh, fair enough. Right. The next thing, which again this happened some time ago now, but we haven't had a chance to speak about it, mm. is the Tories are down an MP, which is very careless of them because they really need to keep hold of all the ones they've got. Yeah, they don't have them in plentiful supply anymore. Yeah. When you're shelling out 100 million per MP at the moment, <laughs> that seems to be the going rate. Letting one slip down the back of the sofa is very careless. It's very, very careless point. indeed. But yes, Anne-Marie Morris, the MP for Newton Abbott in Devon, took the somewhat inadvisable step of using a racist slur beginning with the letter N, which you can work out for yourselves, at a public event. And there was a journalist present from the Huffington Post who was recording the conversation and who obviously you know spread it all over the internet because that's what journalists are for mm. so so she's lost the conservative whip uh, that means she's still an mp but she's no longer technically 
a Conservative MP. Uh, She's still a member of the Conservative Party as well. She's that's true. She an MP, and she is a Conservative, but she's not a Conservative MP. Hmm. Well, this is that's that is an interesting point because some might argue that they should have thrown her out of the party for an infraction of this kind. But I think she kind of saved herself because she very very quickly apologised. Within about an hour, um, she sort of was very very apologetic, which probably stopped her from having anything worse happen. But I yeah. mean. In today's kind of hypersensitive media climate, you just can't get away with this kind of thing anymore. Which is all to the good, because I don't understand how you can possibly have just... Uh, who? First of all, the particular phrase she used is apparently an old saying, which I've never heard before in my life. Yeah. Um, yeah, she, she used it very off the cuff. It wasn't yeah. about any person in particular. It was no. Just... It was clearly just something that she thought people said, but... I yeah. don't think people have said this since at least the 1890s. Mm. I've certainly never heard the phrase before. And Perhaps it's different it's, in Devon. Who thinks it's at all appropriate to use that kind of language anywhere? Particularly Especially when you're an elected official at a public event. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it boggles the mind. It is yeah. quite... Well, this goes to show just how much the way racism works is that it's always, it's not always, but it, it, very often it's, um, it's latent, it's background. People don't even realise that they're being racist when they are. So if you take something that... Because she just thought this was normal. She wouldn't have thought of this as a very racist thing to say. Well, presumably. And, until like suddenly she realises... Yeah, yeah. I also don't think... This is not to say that all Conservatives are racist. But I also don't think it's a co- coincidence that this was a Conservative MP who did it. No. Agreed. I mean, it's not that other parties don't have their own problems with race. I mean, Labour had mm, certainly particularly a problem, as we know, with, with um, anti-Semitism. But... Mm. Although nowhere near as significant as some people like to hype it up. But mm. racism is a f- kind of a fact of British life and pervades all the political parties. But you're definitely right that it isn't a coincidence this was a Tory MP that said it. Mm. I think I would be a lot more surprised had it been Labour or Lib Dem or, or any or other Green. party really other than UKIP. But <laughs> I mean, even, even a Tory MP in... 2017 to say something like this is a horrific and b just incredible how careless you could be mm. well the, as recently as 1964 the conservatives in a general election campaign the one that brought harold wilson to power um uh, distributed leaflets which had the words on them if you want a n-word for a neighbor vote liberal or labor if you're already burdened with one vote tory in 1964 so there's a certain amount of this is in the DNA of the Tory party as well. They've done an awful lot to improve on it um, uh, over the decades. But um, you can't just expunge that kind of... And, and the whole society has this as well, that we have a racist past. It would be strange if we had completely gotten rid of it. And so we can't treat ourselves as a post-racial society with, with too much um, sort of optimism and enthusiasm because this kind of thing does still happen. Even if you are Vince Campbell. Even if you're Vince Cable. <laughs> yeah. This also shows that, um, historically speaking, with humans, you always get a certain amount of an in-group, out-group um, uh, sort of dynamic going on. People like people who are like themselves and not like people who aren't as much like themselves. But you don't get proper, full-blown racism where you think that different races are genetically superior or inferior from each other spontaneously. People don't naturally come to that conclusion. It was invented by elites a few centuries ago in order to justify their 
colonialising power. So there's sometimes this stereotype that, you know, people who are relatively sort of economically privileged are less likely to be racist than working class people who are vulgar and whatever. But it's definitely not true, historically speaking. Racism comes from elites trying to justify their power. Yeah, and the attitudes towards people of uh, non-white ethnic groups are very closely based on the attitudes of the upper classes towards the working class during the kind of 16th and 17th centuries. You can actually look and, and see the way that the, the language that was used to talk about working class people was mapped onto black people in order to justify African slavery. It then, be, it then became mixed up with a whole kind of cultural uh, supremacy argument and there were religious aspects to it as well, although obviously a lot of religious people uh, were anti-slavery, but there were a lot that were pro it as well and used, and used God to justify it. But mm -hmm. initially, biological racism at any rate, in the form we know it today, grew out of prejudices held by the upper classes towards the working classes you know you get people dirty and things like that that all comes from um from the way that the privileged elites perceived the, the the toiling masses below them and also particularly from the way english people treat the irish actually that's yes, kind yeah. of one of the people talk a lot about spain and um and the Reconquista and the, the interaction between Muslims and Christians and Jews mm. in the Iberian Peninsula. And that's definitely part of the history of racism, but also the way the English treat the Irish, going back at, uh, to the original um, Anglo-Norman conquests, uh, that was then mapped very directly onto the way that white Europeans treated black Africans and others, and also Native Americans as well. Um, particularly in the Anglosphere. In, in... Particularly in the Anglosphere, yeah. Which, which now includes most of North America. Indeed. There's kind of a link there between in the uh, early 20th century when uh, America was getting lots of uh, immigration from Europe, particularly uh, Germans and Irish and Italians and whatever. The word white, meaning a white person, was used to refer to Americans and intentionally to exclude Europeans, including Irish and Italian and whatever people. If you said white, that implicitly didn't include those groups. So it shows how uh, race is, a, to an extent, a constructed thing. It's not, it's not actually a fact of people's biology that humanity comes in certain definable types. White is more of a status than a genetic fact. And you can see that today in the way that, uh, in America in particular, people from Latin America aren't perceived as white, even though they are largely mm. descended from European populations, also some Native American as well. But the fact that Hispanic even exists as a kind of category yeah. is precisely a function of that othering process which takes place to make people who actually are basically the same as us, but elites want to try and make them feel and seem different so that they can more easily exploit the working classes of both populations yeah, and prevent yeah. so, any kind of social mobility. Yeah, it's a feature of American ideology at the moment that if you're Mexican, then you're not white, but if you're Spanish, you are white. Which is completely bonkers. <laughs> yeah. It was in the Haitian constitution, because when, when Haiti um, rebelled against the French Empire and it, it declared itself an independent, whatever, and they had this... There, there had been slave revolts before that, but they'd all been focused around the idea of we want to go back to reconnect with our roots in Africa and whatever. 
Whereas what Haiti wanted to do was, because it was just after the French Revolution, we want to do what the French have done in France and set up this kind of directly democratic uh, sort of free state out of the slaves that revolted. Um, but the debate went on inside Haiti over whether they should be an explicitly black republic or if they should just be a general liberal democracy thing. And the solution that they came up with is quite nice, which is that for a while, I'm not entirely sure if it's still there, but definitely a while back, it was in the Haitian constitution that in order to be a citizen, you had to be black. But if you are a citizen, regardless of your skin colour, that qualifies you as black. That's that's a very interesting... Uh, yeah. I remember all that. Yeah. yeah. It was specifically for Polish people, because when Napoleon tried to crush it, the Poles that were part of the um, forces that he sent to put down the Haitian um, sort of independence fighters, um, the Poles mutinied and joined the Haitians. There's a story about how when they were the the French slash Polish forces forces were um, uh, approaching the Haitian lines, and they could hear singing coming from the Haitians, and they assumed sort of from the racism of the time that it was just some stupid tribal singing or whatever. Um, and then when they got closer, they realised that it was um, uh, La Marseillaise, the French revolutionary anthem. Um, mm. And at that moment, they realised, oh God, we're on the wrong side, aren't we? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Which all brings us back yeah, we, to the fact... We've already got too much to talk about. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We, we, we desperately need to create additional things to go on our massive <laughs> list of topics. But yeah, so in summary then, the Tories are down an MP because one of them said something which belongs, I mean, in the 1600s, if anywhere at all. Hmm. And The Tories have responded quickly and decisively against it to disavow it, and well done them, but it's worth remembering that they only do that now, because they've been forced to by anti-racism campaigners over the last several decades. And that we do still have a very, very yes. significant problem with race, whatever Vince Cable thinks. Hmm. <laughs> oh, that's the reference you were making earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I thought you were just bringing up Vince Cable for no reason. <laughs> no, 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 no. I wasn't, I wasn't just slacking off Vince Cable, genuinely. Ah, that's fine. It was, it, was, it was a callback to the last episode. See, that's how long yeah. ago it's been. Neither of us can remember what we actually said. <laughs> Right, let's move on then. Um, let's move on. Out of that particular cul-de-sac. It's quite an interesting cul-de-sac. It was a very interesting cul-de-sac. One of, another one of the interesting things which has occurred since we last spoke is Theresa May appears to have done a complete 180 and from calling a general election in order to get a majority by which she wouldn't have to listen to Parliament, she's changed her tune quite significantly. She's now calling on the opposition parties to pitch in and help run the country because basically she's realised she can't bloody do it on her own. So she said at this critical time in our history we can either be timid or we can be bold we can play it safe or we can strike out with renewed courage and vigour making the case for our ideas and values and challenging our opponents to contribute not just criticise <laughs> it's, it's just the most I mean it's been described as the ramblings of a madwoman by Tom Peck and the Independent and I think Broadly speaking, most people tend to agree with that characterization, Because, as we've discussed before, Theresa May, up until this point, has basically acted in an incredibly authoritarian way, where it seemed as if she didn't want to listen to members of her own party, let alone the opposition. Um, she was trying to run roughshod over parliamentary sovereignty uh, in order to get a mandate from the people supposedly, to push through an incredibly damaging, hard Brexit, which would leave the country 
economically and culturally bankrupt for years to come. Now that that particular project's gone a bit off the rails, she's all smiles and open arms and asking everyone to come in and and yeah. and, and uh, put their hands to the tiller. I very much like um, Corbyn's immediate response to it, which was to um, to say, "Oh, you'd like some of our ideas, okay?" And sent her a signed copy of the Labour Manifesto. <laughs> yeah, and the Tories tend to poach off of Labour ideas anyway. Whenever they yeah, yeah. feel like they need to throw some goodies to the electorate, <laughs> yeah. living wage. The, the point is that she um, she very clearly didn't want to do this. That's the entire reason she called no. the election. So she's trying to spin this as a um, oh, aren't I? very reasonable and moderate because I can work with opposition parties and whatever. But her whole election campaign was centred around the idea that she didn't want to have to work with anyone in Parliament. She wanted to have a mandate whereby she didn't want people, um, in inverted commas, blocking Brexit. Even though they weren't, they were trying to contribute ideas to the process of Brexit, which is exactly what she's trying now to pretend she wanted all along. She's trying to argue it's it's a feature, not a bug. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. A feature, not a bug. Yeah, that's what she's trying to... Spin it as, but it's just spin. Yeah. <laughs> it is. Also, if Jeremy Corbyn really is everything that they said he was in the election campaign, then this will be an extremely irresponsible move. If he was actually a communist extremist and a threat to national security and a terrorist sympathiser and whatever, then why on earth would they do this? That would, that would be an extremely dangerous thing of them, for them to be doing. So it shows that they didn't even believe that either. There's multiple levels of hypocrisy here. What? Hypocrisy from the Tory party, you must be joking. Yeah, yeah. It would never happen. So I, the question I've got, down is, is this as daft as it seems? Is this some kind of th- three-dimensional, four-dimensional chess game which Theresa May is playing? She trying... Just, will this actually do as much damage to her and to the party as it seems like it will. Do you know, I think it it doesn't actually have that much literal direct content, because the, the opposition were always... It, it's a hung parliament, so they were always going to have to be lots of cross-party talk with each other. It's not actually a proposal for a different way of doing things in parliament. It's just a an attempt at framing what's going to have to happen anyway in a way that makes it look like that's what she wanted. So the question is, it might make her look... She's not actually trying to change anything with it, She's trying to make herself look better when she's doing what she was going to do anyway. It might work a little bit, but it also looks very silly. And she's built herself around this... um, Jeremy Corbyn, for example, his whole manner is a little bit silly and self-deprecating and has a sense of humour about it. So it doesn't really matter if he were to do something like this. But because she's built everything around being this authoritative above everything figure if she looks even a little bit silly it all comes crashing down straight away so it might backfire on her she's opened herself up to things backfiring on her in the way that she's she's built her whole personality i i I definitely think it will i don't think you can you can have the the kind of strict headmistress vibe Mm. which she seems to be cultivating and then go out and say oh by the way we would like all the pupils to stop running around the playground and tell us how to run the maths class. I mean, yeah. it's just... It, it doesn't fit with her entire model of running things thus far. I think it's actually mm. not a bad idea uh, to have a bit of cross-party input on Brexit. I don't think Labour will, will want to oh, go no, for no. it in any kind of formalised way, because I think that would just tie them 
to the inevitable catastrophe, which might yeah, also yeah. be part of what she was trying to aim for. I don't know. That's true. But yeah. I just think I, I I just can't. It's another thing. I just can't believe she said it, and <laughs> I can't believe she didn't think through what she was saying before she opened her mouth. And I think it is going to not going to do her any favors. Although, to be fair, the the polls have slightly narrowed in the the week or so since she said it. So maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it, maybe it did work. But. I don't know. It, that's a fluctuation of maybe one or two points. I think it's easy to read too much into that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. This is to be fair. This is what they do all the time when they uh, something goes wrong and you try to retrospectively sort of rewrite history and make it seem like it's what you wanted all along. But it's the thick of it episode, isn't it? Where they where they say, "Oh, he didn't say that." And then, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. No, he did say. Well, you're not there. Well, you're not paying attention. And you're like, <laughs> it's exactly what she did with Brexit as well, because she was Remain, and now yeah. that it's expedient to be Brexit, she's turned around and said, "Oh, yeah, I'm Mrs. Brexit. I do do Brexit means Brexit, hard Brexit, whatever." She was very careful during the campaign, though, not to be too Remain. Yeah, yeah. It's exactly what they did um, with uh, what we were just talking about previously with the racism thing is that they are now all very anti-racist and whatever, but only now that they've been forced to be. But I I know, I don't think people will fall for it. People ain't daft. I hope not. I hope not. <laughs> okay, so the age at which people can claim the state pension is set to rise to 68. Previously, it was supposed to rise to 68 in 2044, but now it will be phased in between 2037 and 2039. That means that people currently between the ages of 39 and 47 will have to retire later than they previously would have in order to claim the state pension. Hmm. That's basically what this is. So the reasoning that they put forward, almost always with this, is that uh, we have a higher life expectancy than we used to, and it's still going up. So if having a state pension is to be sustainable, we're going to have to raise it and keep raising it until life expectancy stops going up. Now, the problem with this is that life expectancy since, for example, the 80s hasn't really gone up that much. A few years or so. Um, and considering that back then the retirement age was 60. So they've raised it now eight years even though life expectancy has gone up, what, three years or so? And in that time, the economy has grown significantly per person. So we're a lot richer. So surely that should be absorbing quite a lot of this increased cost of pensions as well. The reason why that's not happened is because while our economy has grown, it's also been restructured, and it's far more unequal than it used to be. So the increased productivity, instead of going into making sure that we can still have proper state pensions, even with an ageing population, it's gone into having ballooning inequality instead. And that's what no one mentions on the BBC or whatever, is that it's, it's, it's higher life expectancy, but maybe we should cut other areas instead of raising the minimum wage. And the answer is, no, no, that, the entire conversation is false. It's to do with the fact that we've got ballooning inequality, and so, to deal with that, they're just having to cut all welfare provisions. On the one hand, you can see why it makes political sense to do this, because the 
the state pension is, I think, the single largest financial outlay that the government has behind the NHS. It's the vast majority of the welfare bill, much, much bigger than tax credits or unemployment or housing benefit, anything like that that sort. And we do have an ageing population. We are really, really struggling to support the current pension rate. So the only two ways to solve that are, as you say, either we sort out the problem of inequality and the fact that whilst the economy has grown, the amount of money being paid into the the pot for pensions and national insurance hasn't because of the fact that a small number of people have got the vast majority of the wealth and managed to screw it away in tax havens mostly. Or we have, we increase the working age population, which can only really be done over the odds through mass immigration. Now, kind of what the Blair government (laughs) tried to do was the second option to encourage when... um, uh, Poland and other parts of Eastern Europe opened up for immigration through the EU, Blair tried to encourage them to come over in order to, because we had a booming economy, to to take the jobs that we had in order to try and support the state pension age, um, not having to rise too much. Worse, didn't it? It didn't work particularly well. Ah. It worked all right. But of course, the Tories don't have that option. So they have to push it up. The problem is that uh, a couple of people, uh, the TUC General Secretary Francis O'Grady has said that the problem with pushing the state pension age to 68 is that in lots of parts of the country, people's healthy life expectancy, so that's the the period of time before chronic health problems start to set in, which cause significant reductions to people's quality of life and, crucially, to their ability to work a full-time job. In large parts of the country, that happens before the age of 68. So... Pushing the state pension age to above that limit means that people are going to be having to work when they can't. Now, either that means they're going to have to then go, instead of going on to the state pension, they'll have to go on to disability benefits, or much more likely, given the draconian regime uh, that disability benefits are currently under, uh, with ATOS and companies like that, who basically will make you crawl into work on your one remaining limb. That means that People, the only option people are going to have is to work longer into their late 60s, in many cases with illnesses which make it very difficult and very painful to do so. So, I can see what you mean. There, there is a direct, immediate economic reason why they have to do this to, um, to, to make things, to make ends meet, to, things, to make sure that everything still functions properly. Um, but I suppose that's the fundamental issue here, that the way we have, at the broadest level, structured our whole economy is such that you can't even provide people with a state pension before they become impossible to, certainly to uh, enjoy a retirement, let alone work. So the only way to avoid it would be to completely restructure your economy, make it far less unequal and uh, and whatever. So uh, this is a recurring feature with a lot of issues that we have. Um, in in modern global capitalism, which is that we're reaching the point where things are coming to a head, whereby the only way to solve issues is to restructure things in quite a fundamental way, unless you're just going to keep chipping away at the things that people like in their lives. I think obviously this raising the pension age in order to stop the bill from getting too large is not sustainable. Being 68 is already quite, quite high. That goes much beyond 70. 
without massive increases, not just in life expectancy, but also in the length of time that you are, you know, relatively fit and well. Mm-hmm. You, know, you can live till you're 110, but you're not going to be, you know... You're not going to be working in your 90s. Age. No. So if it starts to creep up much, much beyond 70, which at the current rate it's going to have to do probably by the end... Well, certainly, I think, by the end of this century, probably around the 2050 mark, if it keeps creeping up at the current rate, people aren't just simply aren't going to be able to work that long. So you're going to have a catastrophic collapse, even assuming that the economy continues to function um, as it has done and that all our jobs don't disappear anyway because the robots will be doing them. But mm. even if you assume that doesn't happen, which it obviously will... Um, <laughs> You still won't be able to sustain this creeping up of the state pension age indefinitely for very long. Yeah. Well, the, the idea that people often float of a universal basic income, with what you mentioned about the robots taking our jobs, oh, yeah. that effectively amounts to um, lowering the state pension age to zero, so everyone gets state pension. Well, that's kind of the point, isn't it? Mm. Because as we move into an economic situation whereby the majority of not just manual jobs, but actually in more cases, actual white-collar work is going to disappear in many cases before manual jobs do. Mm. Things like um, accounting and uh, the law is already becoming largely uh, done by algorithms, or at least kind of like the basic level research and stuff is being done by algorithms. Obviously, barristers still have to be human for now. Mm. Yeah, yeah. But, um, so, so as... Low-level white-collar work is easier to automate than skilled labour. Yeah, exactly. So, 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 what we're going to see over the next sort of thirty, forty years is a massive decrease in the amount of white collar work and sort of lower middle class professional work that's available, in parallel with basically the the falling out of much of the retail sector, um, which sort of employs a lot of people in kind of more precarious uh, jobs, and also transport. between those two. Between those two, particularly in Britain, that is a huge section of the workforce. Yeah, I mean, that's... that's really in Germany, they still make cars. Here, it's yeah. retail and services and things like that. Exactly. Retail services, transport are all going to be gone. All will have left is construction, and mm. we aren't building any houses. So, given all of that, <laughs> I mean, the universal basic income surely is the only option. So this is a... Going back to the theme, but, um, the recurring theme in a lot of things that we see these days, is that people ask for something very, very reasonable and moderate. And whatever. Another example would be healthcare in America. Bernie Sanders asking for universal healthcare. I think if, if Canada has it and all the European countries have it and basically every, you know, why can't we have it as well? Um, and, you know, why can't we have a state pension age that's not just extremely high and higher than... Uh, than, than some people's effective life expectancy. The, these things are all quite reasonable demands, but they can't be granted without a very radical change in policy direction. That means that we're going to hit a crisis of some kind very, very soon, or a radical change of policy direction. I mean, uh, the 2008 financial crash and the, kind of the global fallout from that should have been the wake-up call which mm. got people to think about these kinds of issues. But for whatever reason, despite the efforts of groups like Occupy and, uh, and organisations of that nature, it has taken sort of nearly 10 years 
for in this country for these kinds of ideas to percolate through into the mainstream i mean now that jeremy corbyn and john mcdonnell are in position at the top of the labor party ideas like universal basic income are starting to be thrown around a bit more i mean the green party mm. have been talking about it for a lot longer uh and it's happening in in sweden and a couple of other places but by and large this is a concept which has only really got into sort of the general uh, zeitgeist in the last couple of years 2008 was when the previous order fell apart but mm. the thing to replace it hasn't shown itself no so we had a similar situation in the 70s where the 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 previous order kind of fell apart the thing that we had in the 40s 50s 60s and then slightly into the 70s started to fall apart worldwide um but very very quickly take for example in britain two alternatives that were quite clear alternatives for things to replace it presented themselves quite quickly the uh, alternative economic strategy of tony benn and thatcherism now thatcherism is the one that that won which was not not the good one but um it was it was a thing that would set the scene for the for the following era which presented itself within about you know a small number of years from the crisis of the late 70s and was then implemented whereas we've definitely not had that this time we've had the regime before fall apart and nothing has replaced it and my worry is a lot of economic indicators particularly productivity particularly uh, global traders and worrying things coming out of china as well uh, a, a huge slowdown in their economic mm. output all of which seems to be sort of the same kinds of things that happened before 2008 yeah because china's grown so quickly in recent decades um it, it, which is extremely important is a is a major issue but they're still quite a long way behind america so some people have suggested that they should play the leadership role or, or at least that they might be able they might be going to play a leadership role in the same way that america did after the war um but they really just aren't strong enough they're not they're not in the same place that america was in of complete domination of the whole globe that america was following the war uh, except for the communist countries america didn't dominate them no <laughs> yeah <laughs> but but the, the 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 point is that we are most economists agree that they're closer to the next big recession than to the last one hmm. and yet still we are in this kind of limbo state where the thing to replace the old system, the the neoliberal order of of the the post Thatcher consensus and re- post Reagan consensus mm. in America, hasn't materialised, or at least it, it isn't obvious. It may yeah. be that what Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell have started in this country might become that, but yeah, how much time have they got? Yeah, because yeah. if we're closer to the last <clears throat> recession, to the next recession than the last recession. They might only have a few years, yeah. and if we don't get something in place quickly, it's going to get very, very hard for a lot of people very quick. Well, the, the things that we we have had two broad groups and movements since two thousand and eight that have dominated politics, but neither of them have been the sort of thing that can offer a solution. We've had people who are basically representatives of the previous order from before two thousand and eight that are all broken apart, um, and it happens that in twenty fifteen both British main parties were that, um, and that's your you know, your Angela Merkels, your Hillary Clintons, your whatever. Um, And you've had people who don't have any direct solutions. They just have this straightforward reactionary idea of we should go back to what we had before, before the thing that we had before 2008. Um, And that would include 
um, obviously Trump and Le Pen and whatever, but also it kind of includes the reaction that the more radical sections of the left had been doing up until this point, which is basically saying we should go back to what, we should just reverse Thatcherism and then that's it. Now, it does appear that something new is happening, something that doesn't have a direct parallel in what's come before, but does come from what's come before, and is presenting some alternatives to the current order, which might work. And that would be Jeremy Corbyn, Bernie Sanders, and uh, Melanchon, and, and Podemos, and whatever. So that gives me hope. But you're quite right. They might not have enough time before everything falls apart again. And, and my worry is just that if we do have another catastrophic crash, or it, it might not necessarily have to be a financial crash. I mean, the the last, you know, the, the breakdown of the late 70s was based in kind of oil shocks and things like that. But if, mm. if we have another major crisis which could be a war the way things are going um before Easily. before that new alternative is it has matured and is ready um we're gonna have to go through all of this that we've been going through the last 10 years all over again hmm. and in the meantime millions more people are going to suffer lose their jobs lose their houses lose their livelihoods and we're already starting from a fairly low baseline this time around where a lot of the problems caused by the last crash are still there under the surface. Mm. We've papered over them a bit, and growth has kind of recovered in some ways, but real wages are still way down. And I just a, think... A great big bubble burst, and what we've done is we've reinflated that bubble. <laughs> so, <laughs> we've not yeah. solved it, we've not moved right. beyond it. We've, we've now got a more damaged, limping-on version of the thing that nearly destroyed global capitalism last time. If it goes pop again, we are in trouble. Big, big trouble. We, we can't do austerity again. There's nothing left to cut. No, I mean, we can't put interest rates down again because they're right on the floor. Mm. You know, there's all of the major levers of monetary and fiscal policy are basically gone. Nothing can be done under the old system. You are right. We need a complete economic restructuring and transformation. But if that doesn't happen, the only other alternative is mass unemployment and starvation mm. so that's yeah. a happy note yeah <laughs> it'll be dystopia or socialism that's the future maybe not utopia but... yeah don't, don't want to be too optimistic maybe not a, a brave new world but yes hopefully not <laughs> <laughs> in that sense no this is not oldest huxley <laughs> Right, so the next topic we've got on our super mega fun list of yeah. things is it's, Bernie Sanders. It's quite a nice uh, one. It's a, it's, a, it's a nice little one. It's a nice little one. Cheers up a bit after all the apocalyptic mm. doom and gloom. Um, so the question is very simple, David. Yes. Is Bernie Sanders the current front runner for the 2020 American presidential election? Well, uh, there is an interesting article. Uh, from Vox, which is an interesting publication. Uh, if anyone reads it, it's uh, it's kind of uh, the the <laughs> it's kind of the liberal version of of Breitbart in America. It's a it's a bit more um, it's a little bit more serene, but it 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 it, it, it does do the, uh, quite a few kind of tabloidy pieces. Vox, calling it Vox has uh, reminded me of that something about Jacob Rees Mogg. Which is that he was asked, Andrew O'Neill was talking to him about what class he thought he was from. 
And Andrew O'Neill said, I reckon you're more like upper middle than actual upper class. And Jacob Rees-Mogg said in his voice, he said, um, uh, um, I'm definitely not a member of the aristocracy. Um, I'm a man of the people. Vox populi, vox dei. <laughs> I remember that clip. <laughs> That's a brilliant clip. But you're getting ahead of yourself. You're getting ahead of yourself. Yeah, I know. It was relevant because you said vox. It was relevant. <laughs> It's just—it's not that relevant. <laughs> no, no. But anyway, anyway there's an article Bernie. by a bloke called Matthew Iglesias uh, in Vox, and he basically says that the current shape of the Democratic Party is in pieces. Um, Clinton is clearly uh, discredited as a candidate. Her entire ideology, which is, as we were talking about earlier, the kind of old order, the neoliberal order, is also discredited, and therefore the next leader of the Democratic Party or the next presidential candidate from the Democratic Party will have to be someone who speaks to a different constituency, uh, has different ideas, and of all the people in the party, only Bernie Sanders is positioned to fulfil that role. That's yeah. his basic argument. So after 2016, uh, the Democratic Party came out of it reeling. It, it took a real kicking in 2016. With the one exception of the Bernie Sanders wing of the party, which came out of 2016 in far better shape than it entered it. It didn't really exist before 2016. Well, it's, Sanders wasn't a member of the Democratic Party. Indeed, yes. He was simply an independent who caucused with the Democrats in the Senate. Um, so, yeah, that wing of the party is far stronger than it was in 2016. And given how close he came to winning anyway, um, that kind of an advantage. And he was against Hillary Clinton, who's been preparing for this presidential run for decades and he'd not been... years. yeah yeah so yeah there were a lot of things stacked against him last time which are definitely not stacked against him this time name recognition will be another one i mean who's heard of bernie sanders yeah as, as it happens i have as well because 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 i'm a nerd but um but you know yeah of course no one had heard of bernie, bernie sanders but... no one had heard of bernie sanders this strange like random senator from vermont not even from one of the two main parties before 2016, and who'd heard of Hillary Clinton in America before? Former First Lady, former Secretary of State, whatever. It, this is reflected in the polling uh, for the 2016 primary, which is that Bernie Sanders' poll ratings just went up and up and up and up and up as time went on, because he wasn't popular to start with, because no one knew who he was. But as soon as he got any name recognition, which just increases over time his poll ratings went with it. And now, people know who Bernie Sanders is just to start with. So, yeah. Yeah. I definitely agree with the first part of Iglesias' analysis that Clinton's discredited. She can't run again. Or if she does, she'll just be pushed aside. I don't even know if she necessarily wants to run again. But even if she does, I don't think she can. Hmm. I also agree, of course, that I believe neoliberalism has been discredited as a force that the the Democratic Party um, should use as its kind of central ideological plank. But then I've believed that for some time. Mm -hmm. I'm not 100% convinced that enough of the Democratic Party itself believes neoliberal, neoliberalism is discredited. Well, the, the um, so corporate America, that corporate class, um, it's I was about to say that they've given up on the Republicans. They haven't actually, because they've managed to, to a very great extent, co-opt the Trump presidency. And not that it was particularly independent of corporations to start with. But still, I can see why they'd be 
more comfortable with a Democrat than anyone else particularly. So the huge amount of power and backing that corporate America can throw behind a candidate would likely go to a Hillary Clinton mold of Democrat and probably not to Bernie Sanders. So he would still face a, a very powerful constituency that would be thoroughly against him in a primary. But he, but he did that last time. He did that last time and he came very close to winning. So that, that's not a change factor. That's not something that will no, make him true. less likely to win. That was there last time and it will be there this time. He also faces a slightly larger problem, which is with um, ethnic minorities, particularly black people. But this has been talked up a bit. So it, it's well known that Hillary Clinton did better among African-Americans than Sanders did. That's not up for debate. By quite a margin. The thing, by, by, by a fair margin. But the thing, is, and of course there are a significant um, segment of the Democratic constituency. So really, if you want to yeah. win the primaries, you need to try and win. Um, african-american voters but particularly in democratic primaries yeah um there is something sort of under the hood a little bit which is that that's only true of older voters if you look at black voters under 40 they increasingly sided with sanders particularly young men but also young women um if you go below i think about 30 32 something like that Hmm. so this is a problem which will become less and less of a problem over time um, as more and more young, younger people sort of get the vote and obviously, not wishing to put too fine a point on it, but older people stop having the vote. Hmm. Um, <laughs> now, African-Americans tend to be very left in their economic opinions anyway, even in comparison to the general American public, which is far to the left of their political class. Yeah, that's very true. Um, but yeah, that doesn't translate into the way they vote always. No, and, and Clinton, for some strange reason, has quite a lot of popularity left over from the, the Bill Clinton presidency, even mm. though she said some rather horrible things about black people at the time. But and for, Bill Clinton did some quite unpleasant things to black people as well. Yeah, but for some reason they like them. I'm not I'm entirely sure why that is. But mm-hmm. uh, I, I, maybe I just don't understand America well enough. But anyway. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but definitely uh, younger people, regardless of their uh, ethnicity, support Sanders over Clinton uh, in a very similar way to um, how Corbyn was able to win uh, large numbers of younger people in this country. So the hope is that over time, the popularity of his kind of wing of the Democrats is only going to go up. Yeah, that's something about this generation because young people are always more left-wing than, 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 than older generations in every generation. But that is particularly true at the moment. Young people now are more left-wing than young people normally are. So there's that that works in his favour. Another slight point against him is his age, because um, he's getting on a bit, bless him. Mm. And by the time 2020 runs around, I think he's going to be yeah he'll be he'll be 78, um, which would make him the oldest person to secure a nomination if he did so. Um, I'm not sure how much of a problem that is. He's quite. Means he'd be eighty-two by the time he ran for re-election. Yeah, I mean, despite his age, he is quite vigorous. Yeah, like we were talking about Vince Cable the other week. He's he's not you know some decrepit old, no no old, elderly gentleman. He is well known for his 
impassioned speeches. It's kind of physical mm. speeches. I mean, he, he moves around a lot when he's talking, and he, Hand and he tends all to shout just a bit. Yeah, and his hair sort of flying back like Doc from uh, Back to the Future. So, health gear. <laughs> so, yeah, so I, I don't know how much of a problem that is because he doesn't seem to be ill in any way. And of no. course, Clinton was a little bit, despite mm. the fact that she's younger than him. Um, but I think it is a point against him with age. Um, it it obviously very much depends on the individual. Some people, because it, it's really not about age, it's about health, and age can have an impact on that. So some people would be unfit to run in their 60s, and some people are fine into their 80s. The, 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 the question is, is the individual still up to it? And I think the only person who can really make that call is the person themselves. If he says... I'm up for running for president, then that's good enough for me, I think. So those are kind of the pros and cons um, in terms of how likely his candidacy is to succeed. So what, what, do, you, what do you think to the, to the question itself, then? Do you think he is the current frontrunner? Well, I can't really think of anyone else. He's definitely the only Democrat in a commanding position in the party. He's, he's For example, he is the most popular politician in America in general. I, th- I think I saw one poll where it was a broader poll, so it wasn't just politicians, it was just public figures in general. And he was, I can't remember if he was just ahead of or just behind, but he was definitely right next to Beyonce. Well, I definitely like him more than Beyonce. Yeah, yeah. Well. <laughs> <laughs> but she's she's very popular in America, I have noticed. That is true. I'm down and with the kids. And I don't know if vigorous <laughs> as he is, uh, he's quite got the dance moves. So. <laughs> yes, this is... This, the, when it comes to... Um, forays into popular culture. It's strange the ones we choose on this show, but okay. <laughs> I know nothing about Beyonce. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely nothing. Oh, but, she's a woman who sings some things and she's yeah, yeah. married to that twat. Uh, right. But yeah, so, the, um, the, the movement that he's built up around himself, it's never really been about him. The only reason he ran in the first place is because no one else on the left of the party would. Everyone assumed that Elizabeth Warren would run, and she decided not to, possibly because she didn't want to run against Hillary Clinton because she thought she might lose. And so Bernie Sanders ran instead, and suddenly this phenomenon has happened around him. So it's, it, although he is a great campaigner, and he's a great guy, and he's, he's well-liked in the, uh, uh, the, the public and whatever, and I do think he'd be a great choice uh, if the left of the party wanted to run him. But the real point is there is now a left of the Democratic Party, and it's in quite a strong position. Which hasn't been the case since at least the 70s. Yeah, yeah. They don't necessarily have to run him. They could run one of their other people that they've been bringing into the party. Now, whoever they are, they would have less of a chance than Bernie because he's so popular and and, and, and well-known and his credentials are without doubt and whatever. But, you know, I think they could do quite well anyway. They wouldn't be a front-runner um, if, if it was someone from his wing of the party, but it wasn't him. But if it is actually him, I think I can't think of anyone else you would call a front runner. I think he is the front runner at the moment. You don't think a uh, Joe Biden might? Uh... I don't know. How old's Joe Biden as well? He's quite old. He's 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 not young. He's not young. Yeah. He's no spring chicken. And also, Joe Biden's not an enormously good campaigner. He's 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 a he's a good guy, but he's not um he's not enormously charismatic. I don't know. I think some of those Joe in transition memes are pretty good. <laughs> that's true. Yes, yeah, true. <laughs> but yeah, he's Uncle Joe, isn't he? I think. I think Bernie Sanders is is 
is at this point probably the front runner. Mm. I think if someone else from the left, someone like Elizabeth Warren, ran, I think they would have a much better chance than they would have had four years ago. Yes. But I think, I disagree with you slightly, I think quite a lot of the movement around him on the left of the party is based in his, his own kind of cult personality in, in a similar way to um, the, the Corbyn phenomenon in Britain. The question is, can that uh, be... Can that machine be um, maintained after he himself has kind of stepped back from the political scene? Yeah. That's the real question. Well, him and his campaign and his team will have been thinking about that question quite hard. I hope so. I mean, his, his, camp, his group is called Our Revolution, isn't it? Something hmm. like that in America. It's the, his analogue to Momentum. Or rather, Momentum is sort of the analogue to that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think Bernie is the front runner currently, hmm. but I hope that it doesn't rely too much on his personality. Well, I hope that, well, that there is some organisational strength that will, will persist and outlast him. Put it this way. If he doesn't run, then the question of who he endorses is going to be a big one. That's very true. And he will obviously endorse whoever runs from his side of the party instead of him. And so that will give them a spotlight straight away. It will lift them above the Lincoln Chafees and the people who run for president that no one's ever heard of. (laughs) (laughs) I I think I got his name right. I might even have got his name wrong. Lincoln? I think Lincoln Chafee. Yeah. (laughs) I think it's Lincoln. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Is it Chafee or Chaffee? That's what I don't know. Oh, right. <laughs> Probably it's Chaffee, though. That sounds more American to me. Right. Anyway, so, across the pond, then, back over to good old Europe, we have the leader of Germany. Angelica Merkel. An- Angelica? I don't think it's, I think it's Angelica. <laughs> pretty, pretty, pretty sure it's Angelica. I don't know how she'd react if I called her that. Probably Angela probably. Merkel. Or yes. Angela, Angela, maybe. Angela, I don't know if it's a hard G. It's, it's, it's definitely a hard G. Okay. It's Angela Merkel. Um, she, we've spoken about her a little bit on this show before. We've been reasonably complimentary about her in some ways, although kind of taking care to point out the fact that we're not members of the Christian right. Mm-hmm. Please don't shout at us. <laughs> um, but there's an article by a bloke called Benjamin Studebaker, whose name I may well be mangling, because I'm not sure if you pronounce the E. But, um, Having a lot of trouble with names at the moment. <laughs> I'm no good. I, I'm really bad with American names because they they pronounce certain letters slightly differently to us. That's true. And yeah. I and I I'm never sure which way it is. I can tend to I can pronounce German names because I speak a bit, but so I tend to assume that any foreign name that I don't know is pronounced the German way, which causes problems yeah. elsewhere. I always pronounce um, like A U as Al and Z as T S. Yeah, yeah. Um, even if the language doesn't do that, but as languages anyway, go, German makes a certain amount of sense. <laughs> Compared to English, for example, <laughs> so much, so much more sense in English. They, they know what's up in Germany, um, which or do they? Which is kind of the question <laughs> yes. we're asking because uh, Benjamin Ooh, nice this bloke I've been following for quite a while and whose blog I quite like, um, <laughs> has published an article re- fairly recently called "Angela Merkel is not fit to lead the West." Now, his argument essentially, you should definitely read the article; it's very good, as is all his uh, his work. You should. It's definitely something. Uh, a blog I would recommend you follow. But his argument is basically that um, by her opposition to Trump and by her taking in the refugees, which we've mentioned before, um, she's kind of won herself quite a lot of uh, cachet with liberals uh, and even to a certain degree with sort of sections of the le- left who afford her a bit of grudging respect, myself included, and David, of course, I think, mm-hmm. uh, as well. However, 
his point is that that is not good enough and that her continuing kind of attachment to the neoliberal ideology which prevailed before the 2008 crisis um, means that she and by extension Germany as long as she's in power are not fit to lead um, the West. The kind of crux of this argument is what Germany did to Greece and Portugal and the other nations of the European periphery after the crisis and during the Eurozone um, in period of instability. Uh, basically, the way that Germany under <coughs> Merkel and the CDU used those countries to, in a kind of predatory fashion, and push down their own wages in order to suck um, spending and investment into Germany and away from the periphery. Well, to an extent, that's what the EU is. It's the it's the institutional framework that allows Germany to run big surpluses and have them be put in deficit countries that can then absorb them. Yeah. Yeah. But his argument is that this the fact that she's done this and continues to do this to this day means that she isn't a fit person to lead hmm. uh, what we broadly call the West. Well, this is what we talked about earlier, that um, after 2008, the old order fell apart, but nothing has particularly replaced it. She's a great example of how the old order doesn't make any sense anymore. It's very out of place. She's just an old-fashioned sort of technocratic, post-political, neoliberal, mid-2000s type. But because nothing has replaced it, even after 2008, they've just sort of continued limping on. Um, but the, the question is, isn't that exactly the kind of leader that you would expect from the West? I mean, she she is the kind of the archetypal survivor, though, because it's in, in, in her case, it's not just the ideology that survived long after it probably should have gone yawning into the void. But also, she herself has survived quite point. impressively for a long time. And she's kind of kept her country above the waterline in a way that most of the um, countries in Western Europe and uh, North America hmm. have at least dipped below at points. So well, it's worth at this juncture mentioning that um, in Britain, our debt to GDP ratio in 2008 rose by less than it did in Germany. So whenever anyone says that Labour mismanaged the crisis, e e even if people accept that Labour didn't cause the crisis, they still often say, but they mismanaged it anyway and they borrowed more than they should have. We borrowed less than Germany. Well, actually, I mean, Gordon Brown wasn't perfect, but his um, managing of the crisis was actually starting to cause a re uh, to result in a recovery. Mm. Um, just before the 2010 election, when, of course, Cameron came in, the markets got shot, he started cutting, and then it went back down again. Yep. We were actually just starting to... to... We'd gone past the trough mm. um, until Cameron came in. Uh, but yeah, so that's a bit of a side point. But um, So do you, do you agree with his analysis, David? To an extent, I, I think... Angela Merkel, particularly with her treatment of refugees and the fact that she doesn't go off on rants about Muslims or whatever, has gotten her a certain amount of um, uh, slack when she's standing up next to people like Trump or Le Pen or whatever. Um, so for a lefty liberal uh, sort of section of society that doesn't really have or at least hasn't had very much to hope for or or, or, or praise, um, it sort of saw in her something that wasn't properly there, a, a, a 
it, it had to believe in something, so it latched onto something that was actually not the champion of liberalism that it wanted, but it didn't have anything else. So, um, yeah, was, especially with her treatment of the refugees, um, that quite effectively, possibly skillfully, depending on whether she did it deliberately, um, made everyone forget about how she treated Greece because she did it in the same yes. year. I mean, that is the big point, isn't it? I mean, all of the periphery suffers as a result of the euro because the eurozone is not a functioning economic unit. It's hmm. too disparate. There's there's too much um, divergence in uh, fiscal policy for the monetary union to work. Uh, the euro is just a terrible idea. Uh, very anti-euro. Um, but so all of the peripheral countries suffered because of it. But Greece in particular, I mean, the, the amount of of suffering that's been caused by the European Union institutions led by Germany, refusal to accept the basic fact that, um, you know, the best thing for everybody, or all the people at least, would have been to cancel the Greek debt and to allow them to sort of exit the Eurozone and rebuild their economy. Um, the fact that that was obviously the right thing to do and that, yeah, Angela Merkel did everything in her power to stop it has to count very heavily against her i think it makes me wonder how much of an effect that had on the brexit vote that we did the idea that the eu felt like a sinking ship that we were wanting to get away from um it, it certainly made me think about voting leave with the you know out of solidarity with the experience of greece i didn't because greece didn't want us to it was overwhelmingly that the greek people didn't want themselves to leave and they didn't want britain to leave they wanted britain to stay in and help them I don't think I don't think Greece should have left the EU, but I think it definitely should Certainly, have left yeah. the Euro. Um, it's very difficult once you've got a formal currency union to leave. Um, if you if you have um, like fixed exchange rates like we did um, with the Deutschmark, it's relatively easy to leave because you can just say, "Okay, we are now trading freely on the open markets, and our currencies are no longer uh, have fixed exchange rates." So you've just cut the tie. You can just announce that. Um, whereas, if you were to print a new drachma. It would take at least six months um, and you're not going to be able to keep that secret because it's such an enormous operation. So effectively, you're announcing a big currency devaluation six months before it happens. And that's how you crash your economy. So it's it's very difficult to leave a formal proper currency union once you're in one. True, but I think the economy had crashed to such a point anyway that, you know. That's true, yeah. <laughs> what, you know, what, what was left to crash? Um, but anyway, yeah, I think I think you... It would have definitely had a much bigger effect on Brexit had we had the referendum earlier. If we'd had that um, referendum in 2014, say, I think there would have been a um, uh, definitely been a huge impact from the, the Greek crisis and the way that we were mm. treated. I'm not convinced it did have that big a one when we had it in 2016, though. I mean, I certainly it certainly wasn't something which you saw many people talking about. Um, it wasn't the kind no, of... No, no. I'm aware not everyone thinks like me. <laughs> vote leave we're using. No. <laughs> More's the pity, but um, <laughs> but it certainly I mean, it, it, you say it um, made you think about voting leave, and I did think about voting leave. I relatively quickly came to the conclusion that it would be a terrible idea. Yeah, but yeah. Definitely the the anti democratic and the the centralisation of of the the EU and the way that the bureaucracy can act, often at Germany's behest can kind of 
run roughshod over the democracy in the peripheral countries would definitely mm-hmm. have been the re- the reason I would have voted Leave if I had. But I don't know how much effect it had on the general population. Yeah, yeah. possibly not. Um, something that you mentioned about um, she's what she's the ultimate survivor from the pre two thousand and eight changing the t- subject subject slightly. She's the ultimate survivor mm. from the um, pre two thousand and eight era. Mm. She is up for re-election in September of this year. Um, and if she wins it, then she'd have the right to remain Chancellor for um, what would in total be 20 years. Would it be that long, really? I think so. She she became Chancellor in 2005, I think. That's, I mean, that's Putin-esque yeah. in terms of length of tenure. <laughs> I think she, Putin is the only person to have... Uh, of the, um, G20 countries to have been in power longer, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. She's definitely... I'm not entirely sure I've got the numbers right, but she's definitely coming to the end of her third term. Are they four-year terms in Germany or five? I'm not sure. Mm. But anyway, yeah, I'm a huge uh, amount of time, definitely. That's definitely true. Crikey, that would be something, wouldn't it? 20 years of chance of that. I think that would yeah, yeah. be even... Um, even Adenauer with that. Yeah. Well, the longest um, modern prime minister we've had is Thatcher, and she was in for 11 years. Hmm. And that seemed like an eternity. Not that I was there, of course. <laughs> no, no. It seems like an eternity even looking back on it. Right? Yeah, yeah. And Blair was ten years. I was there for that. Um, yeah. Yes. Um, yeah, a few months ago, in, in May, it looked like her party, which is pretty unassailable in Germany, they've been... Post-war chancellors have come from that party a huge proportion of the time. Um it looked like it might be about to lose its poll lead to the Social Democrats for the first time in ages. Um, mm. That was just after Martin Schulz came back to national politics. Martin Sch- left Europe. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, he was president of the European Parliament, I think, before that. He was. Uh, and he came back to Germany to be the leader of the Social Democrats again, and there was a huge spike in poll ratings for them. And he's not exactly on the left of the party. Um, no. And this was about the same time that the um, Ossoff thing was happening in America. They were running a Hillary Clinton-style... Democrat in in Georgia in a special election and it and everyone was thinking that maybe he's going to win and at the time I remember thinking about both of them that maybe this represents that third way kind of Blairist not even really even social democrat type of politician maybe not being as completely irrelevant as I thought they'd made themselves and that maybe they can win elections again but what happened with Ossoff happened. He didn't win the election. He didn't really beat the national swing very much. Um, and now the Social Democrats have lost almost all of their poll gains in the back where they started. And uh, 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 Merkel's party's back up to their 20-point lead or so. Um, and, it, and it all fizzled out again. So, I... so maybe they are as irrelevant as we thought. <laughs> yeah, maybe I was right the first time. <laughs> we, can, we can only hope. We can yeah. Hope. Indeed. Yeah. Basically... She is everything that's wrong with the EU. Yes. But I voted Remain, so... But p- fair play for the refugee thing. And, mm. you know, at least she's not Trump. At least she's not Trump, hooray! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that was quite, quite a succinct summary. <laughs> Our main story for <laughs> this show, after nearly an hour and 20 minutes of conversation, <laughs> I don't know what it'll end up being once we cut it down in the edit, but... We'll fix that in the edit. It's for us thus far. We will fix that <laughs> very much in the edit. But our, our, our supposed main story for today is the Great Repeal Bill, which sort of emerged into the light on the 13th. So 
quite a long time ago now, but again, we haven't managed to have a conversation since. It was very personal. Um, a lot of the repeal was kind of what we expected. Uh, all European laws will be signed over into British law so that they can then be uh, repealed one by one. Um, that's what we expected to be in it. Uh, we're going to be pulling out of um, a couple of European uh, institutions which we weren't so sure whether we were uh, but nothing sort of hugely kind of surprising or worrying until you get down to the provision which is here we go so there is a thing <coughs> called a Henry VIII clause um, it's called that because they were brought in by the man himself um, in the 1500s <laughs> the great man himself yes Champion of democracy and parliamentary sovereignty, Henry VIII. <laughs> in the 1500s, um, because that's how bonkers British parliamentary democracy can sometimes be. Um, <laughs> so these things are still around. And basically what they are, God are mechanisms bought in, by, <laughs> bought in by Henry VIII um, to allow him to rule by diktat when Parliament weren't being nice to him. And let's be fair, he wants... Theresa May has decided that she likes the sound of that. Yes, that's exactly <laughs> what she likes to do. Um, I don't think she's yet proposed to chop anyone's heads off, but, you know, David Davis and Philip Hammond should probably be very, very good boys for the next few months, just in case. But, essentially, what these clauses allow the government to do is to legislate just at a whim. The exact text of it is this. A minister of the crown may, by regulations, make such provision as the minister considers appropriate for the purposes of implementing the withdrawal agreement if the minister considers that such provision should be enforced on or before exit day. So, basically this says that the government can do what the hell it likes between now and the day of actually exiting the European Union sometime in 2019. Yeah. The scope of that provision is enormous. If they can just say, I think it's necessary, they can do anything with no reference to Parliament change any law <laughs> absolutely anything it's not even a statutory instrument which is the the normal method of secondary legislation because that at least still has to be voted on it's not debated to the same extent but parliament can at least um can at least strike it down if they decide they don't want to it this can basically allow theresa may or whoever's in power by them to just do whatever they like mm. as long as they can justify it somehow it's being related to Brexit. And because there's no parliamentary scrutiny, that justification doesn't actually have to work. It, as long as they can think of some way they can connect it in their minds... They don't have to justify it to, to anyone. Piece of paper. No, but, they just have to justify it to themselves. Yeah. thing is, they say that they promise to only use it for Brexit. But for, and for a very specific thing about how... if Because this bill is going to have to be passed through Parliament before the actual Brexit deal with the negotiations with the EU is completed, so that on the day that we leave the EU it can come straight into force, they will have to tweak legislation to make sure that the wording means that it's a, a meaningful thing to say, so that the law actually works, it still functions. That's the reason why yep. they say they want it. But there's nothing in these Henry VIII clauses which mean that they are actually bound to only use it for that. And the lesson of... But pretty much all of history is that if you give people power, they will use it for something. <laughs> so <laughs> it's not really a shocking lesson. To be honest, yeah, yeah. power is for. 
So they will, they, they if this happens, if this goes through, it will be used for things that it wasn't meant for. Yeah. That always it does happens. at least end on exit day. So there are some other clauses uh, in this bill which are a little less, little less sort of powerful, but they last a bit longer. This sort of super clause, which basically allows them to do whatever the hell they like, that finishes on exit day, and then it no longer holds hmm. but that still gives them by the time this is published probably about a year and a half to do whatever they like as long as they can justify it as related to brexit which hmm. is just such a huge power grab and it's exactly what Theresa may wanted yeah bear in mind that as we were talking about earlier the reason she called the election was because she didn't want to have to listen to parliament hmm. well this gives her <laughs> the legal right not to have to on anything that's related to brexit and given that a large proportion of our law is currently uh derives from or is affected by european law that basically means you can do what you like on anything mm. this is a, a point that you mentioned about how the, uh, this gives her the ability to ignore parliament and that's why she called the election in the first place this bill seems very much like exactly what they would have done if they'd won a massive majority of the election they haven't changed course at all in response to the the democracy that just happened well, this this bill basically nullifies the election yeah. This, this bill gives Theresa May the same practical powers as if she had a majority of 250. Mm. You know, basically unovertonable on anything. Um, in theory, it makes her even more powerful because she could bring in laws like, you know, I mean, she, if she wanted to, she could reinstitute slavery with mm. this bill. I mean, obviously, that wouldn't wash, but in theory, yeah. this makes her even more powerful. But in practice, it's as if she won a landslide. So this, if this bill passes, it nullifies the election. If she tries to use these uh, clauses for too much, then Parliament can kick up an almighty stink about it. In practice, yeah, they there, could, there they is could, a limit somewhere where they could hold there would be practical no problems. Yeah, yeah, they could kick the government out. And I'm sure that you would have Tories rebelling on that to a certain yeah, extent. But, but even if they kick out this government and there's another election... If the Tories get back in, they can carry on doing what they like. Yeah, that's true. I've just just had a thought that the DUP won't like this. Because they're not in the government at all. Their only influence here, and they're supposed to be, sort of, have this arrangement with the Conservatives, but only in Parliament. The DUP influence over the Conservatives and the government that they've managed to get through this deal only comes about through things that go through Parliament because they're not, they don't have any ministers, they don't have any direct influence over the government. So if things aren't going through Parliament at all, then... Yeah, but they've got that coordination committee, haven't they? That's true, actually. That's what that's, that's just occurred to me, that that might be a way that they can exert, actually, if anything, more influence in these extra parliamentary measures because if they've got this coordination committee and we don't know what's being said in it... Um, that's a way that the DUP can get their fingers into ministers' decision-making. Mm. And if it never has to be put before the House, then there's no chance for the opposition parties to overturn it. Yeah, very good point. Or even challenge it. I just This is just really scary stuff. Mm. This is really, really scary stuff. This Theresa May at it again. But this is this is a this is a dictatorship. That's what mm. this means. They can rule yeah. by a diktat. That's this what is very means. this is very Bashir al-Assad style democracy. I, I was going to say uh, Mussolini, but yeah, yeah, this is, this is incredibly incredibly dangerous. 
and there's not been that much talk about it i mean there's uh, there'll be some links in um, the show notes there's an article on politics.co.uk which is where we're getting the kind of specific information from and there's some more general stuff in the bbc and the guardian mm-hmm. and the statesman and elsewhere so it has got some coverage but you know it, it's only been sort of eight days since this came out and already it's kind of died down mm. whereas really there should be people marching in the streets over this i mean when the when the bill actually comes to the house it might kick back up again i hope it does because obviously this is just the the text of the bill has been released it hasn't actually been voted on yet um so when this goes before the house of commons this provision might be stripped out yes but who it, knows it does seem when that, that the happens, opposition parties are very unhappy about it um uh, rightly so um yeah. so well, it, because it cuts it, them completely out of the process yeah yeah so it will be a major target for them in in the progress of the bill through parliament and hopefully there'll be a few Tory rebels who agree with, you know, the idea of parliamentary sovereignty yeah, yeah. who might be able to. Given, given how small their majority is, even with the DUP, there really doesn't have to be many Tories. And pretty much every opposition party will be voting against uh, that kind of a thing. They will be on board with the idea that you don't want these Henry VIII clauses. Yeah. Or, or at least I mean, it... the, these, this particular very wide-ranging one. I can see why you might need some of them so that you the, the actual justification the um you need the law to make sense when it actually comes into force on Brexit day but I mean, this this particular formulation of the clause is yes. is just it's an unprecedented power grab mm. and, and unless you count actual absolute monarchs that we've had in the past yeah yeah but yeah this is I say it's short of dissolving parliament and arresting mm. however many MPs it was this is the most unprecedented paragraph in the history of parliamentary democracy. Raising your banner in Nottingham or wherever Charles I did it. Northampton? Was it Northampton? Somewhere in the Midlands, I think. Somewhere in the Midlands. <laughs> somewhere in the Midlands. Not from somewhere in the Midlands, but who is a Tory backbencher who believes very deeply in parliamentary sovereignty. Comes our final story for this particular show. Dessert. The question on everyone's lips, David, the question with which the internet is abuzz, and the question I ask you now is simply this. Can you clog the mog? Can't clog the mog. No one can clog the mog. No, I may be able to clog the mog, but not alone. The consensus seems to be that that, that no one can clog the mog. We may be able to clog the mog, but only with your help and yeah. support and and this is going to get a bit pathos in a minute but anyway yeah. donate here yeah, yeah. give us the strength to <laughs> clog the mug so for those who think we've gone completely mad and no <laughs> what we're talking about which would be entirely understandable i've just realized how strange that would sound if you don't know what we're talking about <laughs> yes so for for those people uh this is an internet meme based around a chap who did come up earlier uh david David mentioned him yes. in an earlier story, in a little tease um, <laughs> for this particular segment. His name is Jacob Rees Mogg, and he is the poshest man alive, he is, yeah. apart from potentially the Duke of Westminster. But um, he he's a conservative backbench MP. He's fairly young. He's quite. He's, he's not that. He's he's not that um, that well known. He's never held ministerial office, but he's. Um, among political political junkies such as us, he's a known name. Hmm. He's been on. Uh, he's been on. Have I got news for you? 
He's been on Question Time. People people sort of know who he is. Uh, and there's been a very weird kind of cult of personality that's grown up around him in mm. the last few months. And, particularly and what a personality it is. And it is. It's an impressive personality around which to form a cult. And the, the loose organisation which has developed in order to deliver the, the eternal victory of Jacob Rees-Mogg as Prime Minister of Great Britain <laughs> and Northern <laughs> Ireland, which is a sentence I can't imagine, just can't believe I'm actually saying. It's called Mogmentum. <laughs> you say you couldn't imagine Jacob Rees-Mogg being Prime Minister, but just remember, President Trump. That is very true. I take Prime Minister Mogg over, over, over President Trump any day. Yes. So, right. Yeah. He's quite a nice bloke. <laughs> he's funny. He's likeable. He's polite. He's well-spoken. Um, and he, I think he's quite smart, from what I can tell. He does seem to have his head screwed on. But, unfortunately... He doesn't actually appear to be very much of a maverick in terms of policy or whatever. He's not really a Peter O'Bourne or a Douglas Carsville. He's really just a Tory. He, in terms of partisanship, he always sticks by the Tory leadership and defends them on everything. In terms of policy, he's just a quite right-wing conservative. But he's quite eccentric personally. And then that's about it. I'm slightly disappointed with that because he's, I, I, I like to like right-wingers. I, I like finding ones that I think, oh, that's a good point. That's a, that's, I like being able to find sensible things in my opponents. Unfortunately, I don't really see that much in Jacob, Jacob Rees-Mogg. He's quite a nice figure, but as a, as a political position, he's surprisingly unremarkable. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. He, he does seem like a decent enough bloke. He is, as you say, incredibly polite. He doesn't do. He doesn't go in for smear campaigns and ad hominems and all this kind of thing that a lot of mm. um, politicians do. Um, he's very well mannered. He knows his his parliamentary history. He's he's quite often to be found in the house bringing up obscure points of of, of procedure and mm. quoting Hansard from three centuries ago and often <laughs> arguing with the speaker over who in fact knows parliamentary procedure best, which. John Burko thinks is John Burko, but everyone else on Earth <laughs> agrees it's probably Jacob Rees-Mogg. Um, but I'm a man of the say, people. Vox populi, vox dei. As you, <laughs> but as you say, he is a weird. He is weirdly conventional in his political opinions. Yeah, I don't really. I don't say that with any glee. I, I really want him to be the kind of conservative who, because very often I can. You can learn things from a conservative who's taken some interesting positions more than you can from uh, a sort of liberal who's much closer to you, but that means that you don't really have very much to talk about. Yeah. But the... unfortunately, not in the case with Jacob Rees-Mogg. No. Which kind of makes this hashtag Mogmentum, which is still brilliant, <laughs> a little bit... <laughs> Well, as um, as the New Statesman uh, writer Anoush Takelian said, it's a bit hollow, because the whole point of momentum was that it was set up, it evolved out of the campaign to get Jeremy Corbyn elected, 
and it was set up to defend his position uh, and to defend the gains that the left of the Labour Party had made <coughs> within the party structure. Defend and There's expand. No... Defend and expand, indeed. There's no real <coughs> parallel that could possibly take place around Jacob Rees-Mogg because the whole point of momentum is it is it succeeded because it had as its figurehead someone who was different to what had come before. Hmm. And in all ways other than his presentation, Jacob Rees-Mogg isn't particularly. Hmm. There's no raison d'etre to it. It's just... No. So it's a... It's an internet fandom, if you like. But I don't... I don't know how much um, genuine chance there is that it could develop into a, an actual political movement. And I think that he he doesn't have any baggage within the party. He doesn't really have enemies in the parliamentary party very much. And he does come across quite well. And he's a straight-down-the-line conservative with a slightly more Brexity um, uh, uh, right-wing lean to him, which is the way the party as a whole is going. So that's kind of what the Conservatives will be looking for in a normal leadership candidate. So he might still run, I think, and he might have a chance at the leadership as sort of an outsider, you know, one of the long-odds candidates, but relatively conventional. Um, But I don't think there's much... um, mileage in him running as an anti-establishment figure or a, or a, a, a maverick who wants to change the party or a different kind of conservative or something like that. You, you actually think he may run um, when the inevitable contest to replace Theresa May occurs? I doubt it, but he could, and I think he'd make a reasonable stab at it. Given how little proper headline talent the conservatives have these days, and consider, considering how much of an sentence. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and considering how much of an outsider Theresa May was to become prime minister, um, she, she was, was maybe she, she was maybe I mean, she was maybe fourth or fifth in the running or so. See, I always I always thought I pretty much from the moment Cameron resigned, I thought it would be May. Really, well, you're very prescient yeah. then. I I well, I just basically I thought Os, I thought Os, Osborne no because he's been discredited by the failure of the Cameron project. I thought Boris Johnson, the country would vote for him, but I'd, I'd never thought he'd make it through to the final two because I thought the party would just would just stab him in the back, mm. which is eventually what happened. I didn't think it would be Michael Gove that would do it. Mm. <laughs> Mind. That was a bit of a surprise. And then I thought, well, if those two are out of the way, then what, what what's left but Theresa May? I actually thought she would make an alright Prime Minister. I thought she would probably the be better than Cameron. Yeah, so <laughs> did I. She surprised me with how rubbish she has been. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I actually sort of believed the strong and stable myth a bit until she actually got into power, mm-hmm. at which point it became rapidly clear that, that wasn't the case. Um, but, yeah. No, I always thought it'd be May. Fair enough. She's quite close to... She's quite close to Cameron as well, though, so wouldn't she be tainted in the same way that George Osborne was? She was there for a long time, but I never saw her as ideologically close. That's true, yeah. I was I always sort of viewed her as a bit more of a hardliner. Um she was I didn't didn't have the kind of liberal gloss that Cameron put on things. 
which I suppose fits in well with the post-Brexit Conservative Party. Yeah, yeah. And she's definitely gone on to demonstrate that since she's been in power. Mm. Um, yeah, she's yeah. even though she's changed from Remain to Leave, she's been a lot more enthusiastic about Leave now that she is it than she was when she was Remain. So part of me thinks that maybe it's not that she's now Brexit, um, but it's only for political expediency. Perhaps it was that she was Remain before entirely out of political expediency, but she's always been a bit sympathetic to Brexit. And now that she's leading a party that's going to have to do it anyway, she's just gone all out for it. Because she has been much more... She's been more hard Brexit than she's needed to be. She could have been much more... Yeah. Considerate. Yeah. That's very true. To be honest, I hadn't even considered that, that it might have been the Remain bit that was... that was the cover. I was like, yeah, maybe. That would make a lot of sense, actually. I've done well. I've done a good... Yeah, that's that's. Yeah. Whereas going back to Jacob Rees-Mogg, he's definitely very much always been a hard Brexit. Too. Oh yes, yes. Um, <laughs> I'm just thinking about Jacob Rees-Mogg, and it's making me laugh. He's he is a brilliant, brilliant man, but he would he would be a fairly terrible prime minister, I think. He talks about how um, he he listens to the radio in the bath, and if the national anthem comes on. He has to stand up in the bath. (laughs) (laughs) This is about how he hates having to do that. (laughs) That's incredible. (laughs) Also, what What channel is he listening to? I don't know. What's his playlist like? (laughs) Is he just shuffling through? You think he's got his good Land of Hope and Glory, Royal Britannia on there, a bit of Jerusalem, and then. Oh, God save the Queen. Up we get. Up we get. That's an image that I kind of didn't want in my head, but also definitely did, and that's that's fantastic. Ladies and gentlemen, Prime Minister Jacob Rees-Mogg. <laughs> excuse, excuse me. <laughs> I do like him. If I knew him, I reckon I'd like him. Yeah, he'd be good for a pint down, pint down a pub. I'm now yeah. imagining him delivering his victory speech on having been uh, elected prime minister from a bath <laughs> like a like a proper old-fashioned iron oh yeah four-footed yeah. tub tub yeah <laughs> outside number 10 just covered in suds and then playing the national anthem at the end and standing tall and proud one carefully placed kind of bar of soap to conceal his modesty <laughs> Well, it's, um, before he ran in, in, in Somerset, which is where he's MP at the moment, he ran as a massive outsider somewhere in Scotland, in a big, oh, really? big oh. Tory heartland. This was a couple of elections before he first got elected. And he, he got mocked quite a lot in the press at the time. He didn't have his being... nanny. Yes. He brought his, his nanny, nanny along. Campaign for him. Which is nanny, not in the sense of his grandmother, but in the sense of his governess, the yes. woman who who his parents employed to look after their children, nanny in the Victorian sense. Yeah. Um, he also did it in a Mercedes, which pe- pe- he got pulled up on that, thinking that maybe that was a bit sort of show-offy to be doing in a working-class Scottish community when you're a massive foppish Tory. Um, <laughs> and he responded with, well, I thought the Bentley would be inappropriate. <laughs> <laughs> What a man. 
the more we talk, the more I'm warming to the idea of. I know it's really difficult not to like him. Not for long, just like a couple of months. I mean, yeah. the, the Tories are going to be out of the next election anyway, and Theresa May, you know, looks like she's going to be in this for a bit longer. So why doesn't she just hold on and then stand down two months before the 2020 general election, just before the campaign starts, and then Jacob Rees-Mogg can be prime minister for two months? That's what I was going to say, is that next time we change prime minister, how about the outgoing prime minister... And the incoming Prime Minister just agree that they'll have a gap between them of a couple of days where Jacob Rees-Mogg gets to be Prime Minister. <laughs> just, just so we can say he's been the Prime Minister. If, if there's one thing that we can get the, the two great contesting political ideologies of our time to agree on, is that Jacob Rees-Mogg should be Prime Minister for 48 hours. And no longer. Absolutely not. <laughs> And with that, I think, <laughs> that's us yes. for the evening. Yes, that was quite a good beat. To, uh, it was very good. So off. with one hour and 45 minutes of cool. audio to edit down to something resembling an episode, <sighs> we leave you, ladies and gentlemen, with this. You've been listening to Revolutionary Dispatches. Thank you, comrades, for your time and attention. Viva la revolution. <laughs> The Conservatives have lowered the age at which the retirement age is increasing to 68. So people who are over, no, people who are under a certain age, hold on, I've got that wrong. (laughs) (laughs) There's like three or so different ages here. No, there's four. There's two and there's two different situations. It's quite difficult to get them all straight. (laughs) They have... They have raised the age at which they're making things bad for people. Yes, that's a very <laughs> yes. good summary. Yeah. That's a very good summary. <laughs> oh, so I can't remember, can't remember what the ages are. Sometime in the mid-30s to sometime in people's mid-40s. So, oh, here we go. Right. So, yeah, they've... <laughs> oh, my God. We do our homework on this show. We really don't. This is why This is why we shouldn't have two and a half week gaps. Because <laughs> everything is completely wrong. We were yeah. so we were getting good. This, we this could be a relative. We were having interesting discussions. <laughs> this could be a relatively central story on a quiet week. Yeah, we just bunged it, it in. What? Just as we're coming on, just as we got the mic set up. <laughs> <laughs>